Judges 6, 24 to 35. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it the Lord is Peace. To this day, it stands an offerer of the Abia's rites. That same night, the Lord said to him, Take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old. Tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on the top of this height. Using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the second bull as a burnt offering. So Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But he was afraid of his family and the townspeople. He did it at night rather than in the daytime. In the morning when the people of the town got up, there was Baal's altar, demolished, with the Asherah pole beside it cut down and the second bull sacrificed on the newly built altar. They asked each other, who did this? When they carefully investigated, they were told, Gideon, son of Joash, did it. The people of the town demanded of Joash, bring out your son. He must die because he has broken down Baal's altar and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. But Joash replied to the hostile crowd around him, Are you going to plead Baal's cause? Are you going to save him? Whoever fights for him shall be put to death by morning. If Baal really is a god, he can defend himself when someone breaks down his altar. So because Gideon broke down Baal's altar, they gave him the name Jerubbaal that day, saying, Let Baal contend with him. Now all the Midianites, Amalekites, and other Eastern peoples joined forces and crossed over the Jordan and camped in the valley of Jezreel. Then the Spirit of the Lord came on Gideon, and he blew a trumpet, summoning the Abiasrites to follow him. He sent messengers throughout Manasseh, calling them to arms, and also into Asher, Zebulon, and Naphtali, so that they too went up to meet them. Kenny, thank you so much, and uh, good evening uh, to each and every one of you tonight. My name's Jamie, if we haven't met. It's wonderful uh, to be with you tonight. And uh, two weeks ago, two weeks ago, we finished here at HTC uh, a series uh, in life, uh, we called the Life Series. And what's John's final words in his first letter? He says this, Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Such an intriguing way to end a letter. Uh, lots of love, John. Uh, perhaps might have been more conventional. Actually, John is, is known for, for majoring on love. Uh, throughout his, um, his gospel, his letters and revelation, uh, he, he described himself as the disciple that Jesus loved. And according to tradition, when he was old and frail and others carried him uh, to church, he would repeatedly say, dear children, love one another. But totally consistent uh, with John saying, dear children, love one another, is him saying, dear children, keep yourselves from idols. And that's how he ends his letter. That's John's drop the mic moment, as it were. And now uh, we're here in, in Gideon. And what did God say last week? We saw in verse 10, I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. And that's exactly uh, what we see them doing here. And last week, we looked at identity. But uh, before God even speaks to Gideon about identity, he speaks about idolatry. And this week, we see idolatry up 
close. And uh, uh, this idea of idolatry might seem a bit primitive uh, to us here in 21st century Clapham. You know, we don't really have any reference points for idolatry. But of course, that makes us all the more susceptible to it. Idols are, are really ultimately about what we're afraid of. Our deepest desires, our motives, our impulses, our inclinations, our souls, if we could get to the bottom of them. And what we see in Judges is a cycle, is a cycle of, of sin, oppression, repentance, deliverance, and peace. Over and over it goes. It's a kind of doom loop, the original doom loop, the original doom cycle. And the bad news and the sad news is that this particular narrative of Gideon does not end well. Sorry to give you a little spoiler alert, but the story of Gideon ends with idolatry. And idolatry has been normalized at today too, in, in two ways, in culture and in individual hearts. So firstly, in culture. In culture. John Tyson, in his book, Beautiful Resistance, writes this. We instinctively look to a peer reference group to disciple us and to instruct us in how to be acceptable in each setting. These groups become our relational and behavioral dashboards, letting us know where we fit in and what we need to change to receive approval and acceptance. We humans have little cultural antennae, always shooting off signals to gauge whether we belong. How do I fit in? How do I live? What's valued here? We read, adjust, and conform. These external forces can exert tremendous pressure on how we act. And if you and I want to free Clapham from its idols, then you and I need to be free from those idols ourselves. Money, sex, success, power, image, radical individualism, approval, popularity, comfort, greed, family, political ideology being the answer. Cultural idols, cultural idols of Clapham. And we have a culture here too at this church, don't we? A little Christian microcosm. I wonder how easy it is for us in this setting, in this evening service, to compare ourselves with other people, the little antennae that John Tyson was speaking about, just triangulating how we're doing based on other people at church. You know, they're doing it, so it can't be that bad. The final verse of the book of Judges ends with this. The final verse. In those days, there was no king in Israel Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It's absolute chaos. We looked last week at, at God's eyes, how, how God sees things, how he sees things differently. And when we think about the global church, God's church, yes, the, the wider church has, has idolized gifts over fruit, competence over character, celebrity over Christ, culture over Christ. Uh, earlier this year, just before Easter, um, 
our family, we were in Australia. And uh, my wife, she got, she got a tick on her leg. And of course, um, everything is sort of scarier in Australia, isn't it? And uh, uh, it's amazing, actually, that she, she noticed this tick because they're so small, they're so tiny. And because she knew what to do, uh, she knew to, to yank the, the tick out straight away. And if you don't do that, otherwise you need some, some pretty heavy meds to deal uh, with the infection. Something that seems so, so tiny, so subtle and harmless. But idols have such a way of getting into our system, of, of latching onto us and infecting. And they get into our hearts. They get into our hearts. Idols have such a way of, of finding their way into us without us even knowing. It's very easy to uh, be part of Connect Group, uh, to come to church more than once, to uh, spend 500 pounds of your hard-earned cash on a Louisa Mulvaney print, uh, to, to serve your little socks off at church, to read books about spiritual formation formatted in Helvetica. And all the while, all the while, hold something different to God as being greater in your hearts. And God is more interested in your heart than in your religious habits. And that's what's going on here in Judges. They, they haven't actually um, replaced Yahweh with, or God as, as we know him. They have combined God with a bit of this and a bit of that, other idols, you know, just in case. Michael Wilcock writes that the gods have not changed, the human nature has not changed, and these are the gods that humanity regularly recreates for itself. And these idols all have one feature in common. They promise that they can make our lives better than we can make them ourselves. Yet at the same time, they appear amenable to our manipulating them so we can get what we want without losing our independence. Here is the enemy among us. We say we worship the Lord, but the world has crept in and controls our heart. the biblical counselor, Elise Fitzpatrick, she says this, how can I tell? How can I tell if I'm worshiping the blessings that I desire or God? If you're willing to sin to obtain your goal, or if you sin when you don't get what you want, then your desire has taken God's place and you're functioning as an idolater. Idols will only drain away your love for God your devotion to him, your passion for him. And so we see idolatry, idolatry normalized in our culture, idolatry normalized in our hearts. Compromise, essentially. And this is what we see in, in Revelation, in Revelation chapters two and three, when Jesus writes to the church. And the danger is, is that we become a church that prides itself on being healthy, wealthy, and fashionable that is full of deeds and activity and actions, but is self-satisfied, tepid, lukewarm, and utterly useless to Jesus Christ, being shaped by culture rather than shaping culture. And in the book of Revelation, Jesus, he spits this church out of his mouth. And we see in the book of Judges that God hands his people over to the Midianites, 
So what's our response? What should our response be? We see there in verse 25, tear down your idols, that imperative, tear down your idols. Verse 25, tear down your father's altar to to Baal and cut down the ashrapole beside it. Now this verse doesn't just come in like a wrecking ball. Actually, what we see in the next verse immediately is is in verse 26. We see, uh, then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God at the top of this height. Willpower will only get you so far. What you and I need is not willpower, but God's power. We see here the, the power of worship to not only tear down the idol, but to replace the void to replace the void with a love for God. At the top of the height, we read, love for Jesus above all and over all. Because idolatry is is not just worshipping bad things, but it's often when we turn good things into God things. It was in 1987 uh, that Ronald Reagan uh, went to Berlin And he said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. And a couple of years later, that Berlin Wall came crashing down. And the dividing line, the dividing wall that separated people from West and East Berlin had gone. And tonight, I believe what God is wanting to say to us is tear down the wall. Tear down the idol. Tear down the thing that is separating me from being in in total relationship with you. But of course, it's, it's not that simple, is it, when it comes to this command, this, this imperative uh, to tear down the idols. Because we see there, there's, there's fear. You know, we, we might feel uncomfortable uh, removing idols from our lives because they have such a grip on us. Baal and, and Asherah, they were uh, gods of fertility, of rain, of wind. They were gods of provision, And at this time when the Midianites were were stripping them of all their livestock and their agriculture, their produce, things that worked really hard for, you can understand. You can understand why they want security, why they want security of provision. And so they added gods to Yahweh, added gods just in case. But God requires our total devotion, our total love for him, all of our worship, all of our praise. How do, how do I know, how do I know if there's an idol in my life? It's when the thought of losing this idol would cripple me. These things, these idols, they cannot help you and they will not help you. And for Gideon, there's another fear, isn't there? You know, he's, 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 he's really frightened and he tears down these idols in secret. We read in verse 27, so Gideon took 10 of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was afraid of his family and the townspeople, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. There's fear, fear of what his family will think There's fear of what um, those around him will think. So it's not just a heart idol, but a cultural idol here. That fear of of man, that fear of what other people think. 
And what happens? What happens when Gideon tears down the idols? Firstly, we see outrage. Outrage in the community. And secondly, we see that Gideon is filled with the Holy Spirit. Firstly, we read there that they demand that Gideon's father, you know, bring out your son, bring out your son, for he must die. And the writer here, we see the writer uses the word hostile to describe at the community. They are hostile towards Gideon. And God has been calling us as a church to not be afraid of what people think, to not go after cultural relevance, but resilience, to stay true to Jesus and his good news and his freeing power to free people of idols. When we stay true to Jesus Christ, we will be endlessly relevant to a world that is gripped by idols. Secondly, we see here, we see um, to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Not just, not just tearing down idols. This is not about willpower. This is about what God can do in and through us. William Cooper, uh, one of the greatest English poets and hymn writers. He was actually drawn here, drawn to here, drawn to HTC, to, to worship and to come alongside at the Clapham sect. And he was an abolitionist, and he was also known uh, for a lifelong battle and struggle uh, with his mental health. One of his most famous hymns goes like this. The dearest idol I have known, whatever that idol be, Help me tear it from thy throne and worship only thee. He takes the imperative of, of tearing down the idol. But the, next, the very next verse begins like this. So shall my walk be close with God. This is not ultimately about us tearing down idols for the sake of it. This is about you and me having closeness intimacy with God and knowing his presence in our lives. Another verse in that same hymn goes, O fire of God, come burn in me, renew a holy passion till Christ my deepest longing be, my never failing fountain. This is about Jesus being our main desire. And you can't do this by yourself. You have to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And we find that as we hand over the idols in our lives to God, we find the spiritual power of God flowing in us and through us. You and I, we've got to replace our idols. We've got to replace our idols with worship. In verse 34, we see, Then the Spirit of the Lord came on Gideon, and he blew a trumpet, summoning the Abyssalites. I think I got that right. Uh, he summoned them to follow him. Worship is a weapon. A worship is warfare. It's a battle. Worship is not what most people think it is. Because um, of where I sort of get to stand in this building uh, quite often when, uh, say, there's um, uh, guests coming for baptisms or for weddings, I often actually see the sort of bemused looks on people's faces as you're all raising your arms in worship. And sometimes I see bemused faces, sometimes I see mocking faces. But worship is, is not a sing-along. 
It's not a sing-along of hyped-up people. Worship is a weapon. We are worshiping God only. I will not combine my worship with God, with worship of other gods, of other idols. And so you and I, we need to, to consecrate yourself to God. Consecrate yourself to God. Set yourself apart for God. And that's what Gideon needs to do here. Effectively saying, I will not contaminate my relationship with God with other idols. There's the, the obvious sins, the, the big sins. But then there's uh, also the good things too. You know, your work, your career, family, security, all these things, as good as they might be, Jesus will not let them take his place in your life. It's a very confronting thought for us as, as individuals and also as a community. Is Jesus number one? Or is community number one? Is making a difference number one? You know, whatever it might be. Because in, in Revelation, the church is sucked into the idols of wealth, health, materialism, fashion. And Jesus, he, he's not even in the church. He's not, even, he's not even in the building asking to be led into his own church. Makes me think about John Wesley and how John Wesley, uh, as he prioritized uh, holiness, as he was ruthless with sin, and he would preach, and time and time again, he was chucked out of church buildings. And time and time again, as he spoke outside in the open air, we, he saw the power of God, God's Holy Spirit, his presence moving and stirring people and setting them free from their idols and calling them to a life of more. The Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit after all. He is a holy God. Holiness is not an optional extra. So what kind of evening service do we want to be? Will we consecrate ourselves to God? Researching and writing this talk um, in my little office over in Bromwell's Road, upstairs at Bromwell's Road, I just got to a point where I had to stop writing. I had to step away from the chair and get down on my knees in the office and pray and confess my sin to God and as he highlighted idols in my life that I didn't even know were there. Can I urge you tonight to ask God, to ask him, where are the idols in my life? These things that, that rob us, they rob us of freedom, they uh, get a grip on us, they, they rob us of the things that God longs for our lives. I know this is gonna be a battle, but we are not alone. We're not alone in this battle because Jesus breaks the cycle. He breaks the cycle, that, that doom loop that we see in Judges. You know, when I was spoken tonight about the way that Jesus writes to the church in Revelation, also think about him entering the temple, entering that the temple in that premeditated way with the, the whip that he'd carefully uh, created to drive out the money changers and traders. And if you let him, if you let Jesus Christ, he will come into your life 
You and I are meant to be temples of the Holy Spirit. And he will clean out. He will clean and come and live with you and me. And where God tells Gideon to, to build a proper altar, Jesus, he has built a proper altar once and for all. And to pay for your sin and my sin, no more sacrifices needed. And where the outraged community says, says bring out your son for he must die. Jesus is the son of God who was brought to die for you and me to free us from our idols. And where God gives Gideon his Holy Spirit for a specific purpose, Jesus promises to give his Holy Spirit to all people, to anyone who says yes to him. And where Gideon is a deficient judge, a deficient leader, Jesus, he is the perfect judge, he is the perfect king, he is the perfect saviour, and he gives you and me his identity. And unlike every other idol, he won't let you down. He won't disappoint you with ever diminishing returns. He breaks the cycle. He breaks the cycle of idolatry and self-destruction. Because we read in verse 24, the Lord is peace. The Lord is peace. The battle is over. Jesus, he has provided grace and he longs to come into your life to eat with you, to party with you, to be with you. John Newton, the, the author of the hymn, Amazing Grace, he wrote to William Cooper in 1767. It was during one of Cooper's moments of depression. And uh, in this letter, Newton referred to the book of Judges, and he wrote this. I can only advise you to resist to the utmost every dark and discouraging suggestion. The Lord has done great things for you and wonderfully appeared in your behalf already. Though sin has abounded in us, grace has superabounded in him. Though our enemies are many and mighty, Jesus is above them all. Place Jesus above it all. At the top of the height of your life. The idols of our culture, the idols of our hearts are no match for Jesus Christ. And Jesus, he is totally devoted to you and he will never let you down. Amen, amen. Would you like uh, to stand?